Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. All right. Hello, hello, everyone. We've got a special episode here today. It's a subject that I normally don't talk about. I try to avoid this subject. And that is the subject of vaccines. Especially on Instagram, it's not something I want to talk about. First of all, it's controversial. Second of all, we could get in trouble on social media. Could have the post flagged or potentially get shadow banned. Among many possible restrictions. And we faced many of these already on Instagram and on YouTube. But podcast is a little bit more free and open here. And a lot of people want us to speak about this and want me to speak about this because it's an important subject in today's society, but what we do in the alternative health business, specifically what I do, I sell supplements, our job is to help people get healthy. So all of these things that could potentially harm us, it's literally not our business. Our business is to do what's good, to give you the information you need to do what's good, to give you the products for your body to have what it needs to be healthy. A very common question we get these days is, how can I, quote, detox from these vaccines, especially the people who got them during the pandemic? I'm going to discuss some of these things, but I'm not meaning this to be a completely definitive account of the history of vaccines. What I'm doing here is going through one of my favorite books on the subject. It's called Dissolving Illusions by Suzanne Humphreys. And this is a big book about the history of vaccines. The subtitle is Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History. And I'm not going to summarize this book for you. What I'm doing is going through the points that I saved back when I first read this book in 2016, almost seven years ago. And I know that because I wrote it on the back of the book here, as I usually do, that I finished reading this November 19th, 2016. So I know a lot more now, but this is what jumped out to me back then. This is what I thought was important, something that might be useful in the future, something that might be worth sharing. And we're going to go through these points that I saved. And back in 2016, that was before I was really doing any of this online stuff. So I would have been saving these points just for me, but they had to be important points. I definitely recommend reading this entire book. As I mentioned, it's huge. 
It's got lots of information and data. It's still up to this day, it's my favorite overall history of vaccines. I think it's self-published, but they did a very good job here. And when it came time to make my website, noticebooks.org, notice is spelled not us, that's notusbooks.org, and I put my reviews on the website, but I also made a mandatory reading section, because people always ask me, what are the books that I have to read? And there's only a handful of those books, and now and then I read a really good one that I put on the list, but this Dissolving Illusions book, it's been on the mandatory list since the beginning, and I don't plan to take it off, even though I've added a couple more books on this topic. Just saying that I'm not going to be doing this book complete justice, but we're going to dive in deep here. And before we really jump in, just let me mention that you can find anything that I do, all of our social media accounts, especially on Instagram and YouTube and so on, you can find all of that on my website, notusbooks.org. And you can find the books that I've written and the free audiobook versions for my fellow audiophiles here on podcast land, as well as an archive of this podcast. And there are episodes on the website that are not currently on this podcast, and I might never actually post them on this podcast. I'm really trying to stick to the health genre. In the past, I've covered more obscure topics, more controversial topics. And I think there's enough controversy within my own genre here of health, such as this vaccine topic that we're going to talk about today. Now, since I am in the health business, my main job is to actually give health recommendations, give protocols, as we say. If you or anyone you know has a health problem that you would like my advice on, or our advice on, you can contact us on any of the social media accounts on my website, in the channels section, you can find all of that. Or you can reach out to me directly. All of this information should be in the podcast description as well. You can email me or reach out on any platform, especially Instagram where we're most active. We give you a questionnaire based on the information in your answers. We give you a recommendation. We give you our food advice, supplement recommendations, and anything particular to you that you really need to know. All of that is free. You're under no obligation. We do get paid if you buy the supplements. If not, we hope you're better off with the information and with many of the free things that you can do. Lots of being healthy is free. Some of it you do have to buy. Either way, the information is free. So reach out to us there. And finally, I'm compelled to mention the Patreon more. Got a handful of patrons now. Big thank you to them. Now, I don't want to rely on Patreon, but we don't have any sponsors. And we do sell books and supplements and some other things. But right now, Patreon is the best way for you to support this podcast specifically because there is no other revenue on this podcast. I do post all the episodes to Patreon as well, and if I do get enough patrons, I want to do some stuff that I can't do here on podcasts, regular podcast, such as audiobooks that are not mine. Not trying to bribe you, not promising anything either, just saying a few bucks a month goes a long way, and it's the only way for me to see that putting effort into this part, making content, is actually worth it. This is very much a side thing, but I enjoy doing these podcasts and I know they're very valuable, especially when we got taken down. So many of you reached out and told us how much you appreciated the podcast. So I'm going to keep doing it no matter what, but I don't think we're going to get very many sponsors and I'm not going to ever read an ad that I don't truly believe in. So if you would like to support on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash the real notice. And again, notice is spelled not us patreon.com slash the real not us and i'm ready to jump into this book now the very first point that i saved isn't even in the book itself it's in the forward 
Remember, this is a history of vaccines, but you're just going to be seeing snapshots from whatever I saved here. Even the much-heralded success story of smallpox vaccination was not what it seemed. The enforcement of the compulsory smallpox vaccination law in 1867, when the death rate was already falling, was accompanied by an increase in the deaths from 100 to 400 deaths per million. So smallpox was going down, but then they put in mandatory vaccines in 1867, which was accompanied by an increase fourfold, from 100 deaths to 400 deaths per million. And just to give you an idea here, that's the only point that I saved on this page, but I'll read a couple other ones. Official data showed that the same happened with measles. Indeed, when the measles vaccine was introduced to the UK in 1968, the death rate continued to drop steadily, even though the initial uptake of the vaccine was only 30% and didn't get above 50% until the 1980s. So they were talking here about whooping cough, same story, and some others, but the point they're making is that these diseases were already on their way out, and in many cases, introducing vaccines just made cases go up, or deaths go up, or it couldn't be shown that the vaccine was in fact bringing death rates down because death rates were already going down from most of these major infectious and hygiene-related illnesses. And the next point that I saved is a point uh, about the history of medicine. Basically, there's been a lot of chapters in mainstream medicine where common practice was either dangerous or deadly or completely misguided. So here they're talking about childbed fever. Pulperal fever. It's the name given to a deadly infection that affected many mothers in the immediate postpartum period. Severe pain, pelvic abscesses, sepsis, high fever, and agonizing death were brought about by an ascending infection introduced by the contaminated hands of doctors and unsterile medical instruments. There is no single type of microorganism responsible, though the most common bacteria isolated after the germ theory was developed was beta hemolytic streptococcus. So childbed fever is literally just the name they give to an infection from an unwashed doctor's hand or unsterilized medical equipment during childbirth. In the United States, Europe, New Zealand, Sweden, and wherever conventional midwifery was abandoned and taken over by the new male midwives known as obstetricians and medical students, childbed fever followed. Then there's an account here from another history book. Man midwifery was an uncertain but increasingly fashionable and sometimes quite lucrative area of practice for physicians. It may, for this reason, have been a field in which ideas about theory and practice were particularly strongly contested. Midwifery, formerly the preserve of women, was receiving increasing attention from medical men, both physicians and surgeons, during the 18th century, so 1700s. Prominent within this area of practice were the surgeons, for whom midwifery was seen as a natural extension of their activities. Surgeons had traditionally been called in to difficult births by midwives, usually when there was a need to extract an already dead fetus from the womb in order to save a mother's life. During the 18th century, surgeons were increasingly finding ways to extend their practice into the area of normal childbirth. Men midwives, although recognized by society as holding respectable positions and possessing expertise, found their status limited by the hands-on nature of their work. Nevertheless, within broader social terms, man midwifery could be seen as a field of financial and career opportunity. These ambiguities and uncertainties within the status of men midwives may have contributed to the intensity and competitiveness of the debates which can be found in their writings. So childbed fever here, continuing on the main text, was a disease mediated by Dr. Arrogance. And she talks about these famous doctors, Oliver Wendell Holmes, in America, 
in Dr. Samwise of Austria. Samwise is usually the one that the story focuses on. He's the one that wanted to get doctors to wash their hands in hospitals, and they all fought against him. And in the book here it says, Both were ignored and even professionally attacked for their views. After years of mental anguish, watching women die needlessly, they left the field of medicine in disgust. And she's using this as a case to say, you know, never forget the history of medicine. How many people have died needlessly because of arrogance and ignorance? And childbed fever is a great example. In 1746, more than 50% of mothers in a Paris hospital died, presumably from this shoddy care that they were receiving. They would have been better off giving birth in a bathtub at home, because at least they won't be carrying around bacteria from many other patients and sick patients and surgical patients and autopsy patients even. And Samuel he noted that the mothers who were tended by medical doctors had more than three times the rate of death than those who were tended by midwives, and that those who were not internally examined lived. And it says here, doctors often went from touching infected corpses in the cadaver dissection lab to the maternity ward, where they examined women and delivered babies without hand washing. They're doing autopsies without modern rubber gloves, not washing their hands and just going right in to deliver babies. This sounds crazy now, but a lot of similar tragedies happen today. And I just popped this into Google to see what anybody can see if they just ask the question, do doctors wash their hands? Very first thing that comes up is from the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, U.S. government, says studies show that on average, healthcare providers clean their hands less than half the times they should. This contributes to the spread of healthcare-associated infections that affect 1 in 31 hospital patients on any given day. Still a problem. Doctors not washing their hands. And the next point I saved here is just a couple pages later. She's still laying the foundation here, talking about, you know, the history of medical corruption and basically why we shouldn't trust the medical establishment when they are the ones that are saying vaccines are safe. Point I saved here. Preventable medical error is well documented all throughout the world and is the third leading cause of death in the United States. 225,000 deaths per year. That is a commonly cited statistic, and some people come up with different numbers, but whenever they do, it usually does land definitely up there in the top 10 killers, is preventable medical error. And she's quoting this from the Journal of the American Medical Association article, Is U.S. Health Really the Best in the World? Again, pretty famous article. That was from the year 2000, and new numbers come out all the time. But many people still land again on the same thing where preventable medical errors are sometimes in the number one spot, causing the most deaths per year in America. Sometimes on the number two, three, four, right? It's always high up there. Continuing on. With similar numbers wherever the same medical paradigms are implemented. Yet every time an unvaccinated person enters their office, zealously pro-vaccine doctors arrogantly overlook the truth that a person's risk of dying or being maimed from accepted medical practice they offer is far, far higher than any possible death or maiming from a supposedly vaccine-preventable disease. So what she's saying is based on the statistics, you are far more likely to die because of the doctor just being under their care at all than you are for contracting or dying from any of the supposed diseases that vaccines are said to protect us from. Pretty bold statement. One of the reasons I really like this book, it doesn't hold back. And the next pages I saved here are actually charts. 
And she's actually blaming cowpox on vaccinations. She's saying that's what causes cowpox. And the chart shows a big bell curve, meaning it starts out kind of small there at 1859. It reaches its peak, 1883, still quite high 10 years later, 1893, 1895, still high. And then it starts dropping right down as we approach the 1900s. Goes up a little bit, comes down a little bit, but the trend continues all the way down through the early 1900s. And cowpox was effectively taken out of our consciousness. And on the next page is a graph with data from England and Wales. It's smallpox deaths versus smallpox vaccination deaths from 1906 to 1922. And you can see a pretty close correlation. When there's more supposed smallpox deaths, there's more documented smallpox vaccination deaths at the same time. And she's talking a lot about this early cowpox stuff and early cases of children dying soon after being injected all the way back in the late 1800s. And she's blaming malnutrition here and lack of sanitation. And she shows lots of graphic images that she's saying is not the result of smallpox, but is the result of smallpox vaccination or cowpox or many of these other ones. And I didn't save these points, so I'm just trying to bring you along with the book while we get to the next point. And the next one I saved here, I'm not sure what it was, so I think I have to read the whole page. In the 1891 to 1894 smallpox outbreak in the highly vaccinated town of Birmingham had 63 smallpox cases and 5 deaths per 10,000 of population, compared with Leicester, at 19 cases and 1 death per 10,000. It's 5 times more. Leicester had less than one-third of the cases of smallpox and less than one-fourth of the deaths in proportion to Birmingham, which was very well vaccinated, so that both the alleged protection from attacks of the disease and the mitigation of its severity when it does attack are shown not only to be absolutely untrue, in this case, to the absence of vaccination. So the unvaccinated are the ones that were more protected. All the way in 1891. And they said over the years in other outbreaks, Leicester remained down to far less ratio of cases and deaths compared to other populations in the UK. The more vaccinated ones had the more deaths. And doctors were arguing about this back then. Doctors were anti-vax back then. And we know that doctors have been wrong about many things in the past, such as washing their hands. Just saying, this was always very controversial. What do you mean inject biologics into the body? What do you mean using carriers that are toxic in any other context, such as mercury? And the next point I saved is a few pages later. Unfortunately, a belief in the efficacy of vaccination has been so enforced in the education of the medical practitioner that it is hardly probable that the futility of the practice will be generally acknowledged in our generation. He's saying none of these new doctors are going to admit or even really question whether vaccines are actually effective. Though nothing would more contribute to the credit of the profession and give evidence of the advance in pathology and sanitary science. So undoing the belief in the efficacy of vaccination might actually advance the fields of pathology and sanitary science. It is more probable that when, by means of notification and isolation, smallpox is kept under control, vaccination will disappear from practice and will retain only a historical interest. Too bad Dr. Cruikshank there, E.M. Cruikshank, he was wrong. Smallpox vaccination was continued for a hundred more years after he wrote that. But the fact that the practice was unnecessary and had caused needless suffering and death was never recognized or acknowledged. 
In fact, despite all the serious problems with it and the lack of evidence of effectiveness, it is still upheld as the exemplary vaccine to promote vaccine faith today. So yeah, they still do use the smallpox example. Hey, we beat smallpox. You might hear your president of your country talking about that. And I don't think I saved this next point, but I'll read it to you. The year 1948 brought an end to compulsory vaccination in England. By that point, the experiment in Leicester, which had been going on for more than 60 years, proved to be a great success. In 1948, Dr. Millard stated, In Leicester, during the 62 years since infant vaccination was abandoned, there have been only 53 deaths from smallpox, and in the past 40 years, only two deaths. Moreover, the experience in Leicester is confirmed, and strongly confirmed, by that of the whole country. Vaccination has been steadily declining ever since the conscious clause was introduced. Until now, nearly two-thirds of the children born are not vaccinated. Yet smallpox mortality has also declined, until now quite negligible. In the 14 years 1933 to 1946, there were only 28 deaths in a population of some 40 million. And among those 28, there was not a single death of an infant under one year of age. Okay, the next point I saved, we're back in the topic of hospital deaths. A 1977 analysis of the effect of medical intervention on the decline of mortality in the United States since 1900 stated how little medical measures had to do with disease decline. Quoting from the report, In general, medical measures, both chemotherapeutic and prophylactic, meaning preventative prophylactic, appear to have contributed little to the overall decline in mortality in the United States since about 1900, having in many instances been introduced several decades after a marked decline had already set in and having no detectable influence in most instances. More specifically, with reference to those five conditions, influenza, pneumonia, diphtheria, whooping cough, and polio, for which the decline in mortality appears substantial after the point of intervention, and on the unlikely assumption that all of this decline is attributable to the intervention, it is estimated that at most 3.5% of the total decline in mortality since 1900 could be ascribed to medical measures introduced for the diseases considered here. Only 3.5% of the total decline in mortality since 1900 could be ascribed to medical measures. It's not very good. And they show a graph here with mortality rates going way down. That's both total mortality and total mortality minus 11 infectious diseases. You still see the death rate going down even if you take away the infectious diseases. And she continues, the improvement in hospital safety compared to the 1800s may seem revolutionary. The bad news is that in the year 2000, the Institute of Medicine released a report showing that hospitals and doctors are the third leading cause of death in the United States, only after cancer and heart disease. The combined effect of errors and adverse events that occur because of iatrogenic damage, iatrogenic means caused by doctors, caused by medical examination or treatment, iatrogenic. So the combined effect of errors and adverse effects that occur because of doctor-caused and treatment-caused damage not associated with recognizable error, like there's an accepted level of error always, but when they're talking about preventable medical errors, that's what goes beyond the acceptable error rate. So the combined effect is 12,000 deaths a year from unnecessary surgery, surgeries that never needed to happen, 7,000 deaths a year from medication errors in hospitals. So prescribing errors, giving the wrong drug, wrong dose, wrong decimal. 
doubling them up on meds because there was a shift change and one nurse didn't tell the other, didn't write it down or something. Then 20,000 deaths a year from other errors in hospitals. This is just in the U.S. 80,000 deaths per year from infections in hospitals. And 106,000 deaths per year from non-error adverse effects of medications. So they prescribed the right dose and there was still an adverse effect. 106,000 times people are killed by that. So some of these deaths are from doctor error, like unnecessary surgeries. But a huge amount of them are from error of the system itself, using drugs too much. And the above numbers are thought to be an underestimate of the actual damage. The modern outpatient setting was also noted to be dangerous in the Institute of Medicine report. It concluded that between 4 and 18% of consecutive patients experience adverse effects in outpatient setting. With 116 million extra physician visits, 77 million extra prescriptions, 17 million emergency department visits, 8 million hospitalizations, 3 million long-term admissions, 199,000 additional deaths, and 77 billion in extra costs. So outpatient, that means non-hospital, any private practice, any volunteer clinic, anything that's not a hospital. Between 4 and 18% of patients have an adverse effect, and almost 200,000 of them die every year in America. Unfortunately, the flawed belief that vaccines and other medical advances were responsible for this amazing decline has dictated how infectious diseases are treated today. Instead of an emphasis on hygiene, nutrition, and appropriate vitamin supplementation, hey, I like that one, immune system support, and natural remedies, the emphasis is always on costly antibiotics, vaccinations, and other medical procedures. These choices have not been without consequences, as they fight the germs instead of supporting the life force. The host cannot rid its surroundings of microorganisms and, in fact, may be best served by cultivating the beneficial ones as they are actually part of the host's defense. And she quotes here from an article called Cultivating Our Frenemies, Viewing Immunity as Microbiome Management from the Journal of the American Society for Microbiology. The prevailing view of interactions between complex, multicellular hosts and the microbes that surround them is skewed by a historical focus on pathogens. But in our rapidly accelerating exploration of the microbial world around us, there may be advantages to taking the broader view of immunity to pathogens as one aspect of a microbiome management system that regulates interactions with intimately associated microbiota, the great majority of which may be beneficial. So that's saying that if our microbiome is healthy, the probiotics in us, our internal environment in which those germs live in, if all of that is working functionally, that is most of our immune system. There are more bacteria cells in our body than there are human cells. So they're as much a part of our immune system as everything else. I agree. Now I'm in the polio chapter here for my next point, and I just saved a graph which is showing that polio cases mimics almost perfectly the introduction of pesticides and the use of pesticides in millions of pounds. The more pesticides we produce, the more polio we got. And I actually recommend another great book on this. It's called The Moth in the Iron Lung by Forrest Meredith. Very good book. Goes way more into detail with this. And yep, I agree. Symptoms of polio. Probably not an infectious disease probably symptoms of pesticide poisoning. Next point here, still in the polio chapter, talking about tonsils. Healthy tonsils were removed by surgeons for various financially rewarding but scientifically unsound reasons. 
50 to 80% of middle-class and upper-class children in the United States were needlessly subjected to tonsillectomies in the polio epidemic era. Anderson showed in his large group from a 1943 epidemic in Utah that poliomyelitis was more than 2.5 times more prevalent in tonsillectomized children than age-matched, non-tonsillectomized children. So the kids who had tonsils taken out were 2.5 times more likely to have polio or symptoms of polio. That's because the tonsils are part of the immune system. They're part of the lymphatic system. We need all of our organs is our stance. Continuing the text, the incidence of bulbar poliomyelitis was 16 times higher in tonsillectomized children than in the general child population. 46% of the bulbar polio cases had been preceded by recent tonsillectomy. 46% of these polio cases had been recently tonsillectomized. And the incidence of this polio was 16 times higher in tonsillectomized children than in the general population. Yeah, good news. Keep your organs. Saved another point on the next page. The issue with how doctors treated patients in the epidemic era does not end with what doctors did do, but with what they refused to do. Dr. Klenner had a nearly 100% success rate in curing dozens of cases of polio, even bull bar cases, with intravenous infusions of vitamin C. He presented this information at symposia and meetings. He was mostly met with disbelief and ignored. Nonetheless, he continued to cure case after case of polio with vitamin C and published extensively on the details of his experience. And there's a case study here, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but within 36 hours, vitamin C worked. Next point, still in the polio chapter. She's talking about a lot of the uh, technical details and the problems with vaccination and the point I saved. You may be wondering how this information was concealed from the public for nearly 50 years. Congressman Percy Priest ordered and chaired a full investigation of the vaccine controversy. He admitted in 1956 that, in the previous year, 1955, many responsible persons had felt that the public should be spared the ordeal of knowledge about controversy. If word ever got out that the public health service had actually done something damaging to the health of the American people, the consequences would be terrible. We better not tell them that we did all this bad stuff. We better not tell them that we experimented on people without their permission, expose them to germs, expose them to experimental drugs, etc., etc. We better not tell them the consequences would be terrible. We felt that no lasting good could come to science or the public if the public health services were discredited. Well, I think uh, the ultimate good would come to science and the public if the public health services were discredited, if the CDC were discredited, if the FDA were discredited, if the government itself was discredited on giving us health information. Science would be able to flourish with what actually works instead of studying poisons. Crazy. What's the best poison to use? I'm very glad in the alternative health world and business that I don't have to give people poisons and hope it works and help people through their difficult time while my poison makes them worse. And there's a lot here about the history of the polio vaccine, which I didn't save, so we're not going into. Read the book if you want all the information. Dissolving Illusions, Suzanne Humphreys. Highly recommend. Next point I saved here looks like I saved the whole page. In order to examine an issue, it is important to ask the right questions. The title of the paper... Report of the Task Force on Pertussis and Pertussis Immunization implies that the focus is on vaccination. The opening paragraph indicates that the vaccine was the only factor in the decline of mortality from whooping cough. So, after a while, the whole medical world, the whole journalistic world, the whole media world, 
all just believed that vaccines worked, so they weren't asking the right questions from the start. There was punishment for dissenting on the so-called consensus opinion since the beginning. It's how it always works. The old guard always defends their ideas because a lot is at stake. Reputations are at stake. People have written books and written papers and received grants to study things that they believe are bogus. They're not very likely to want to believe that. Very difficult to get people to change their minds. One of my favorite books on the subject is The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. Many people cite that book to talk about the dangers of consensus thought and current theory. Whatever the current theory, whatever genre we're talking about, whether we're talking about biology or physics or psychology or medicine, things always change. There's always things that seem as if they're rock-solid dogma, and they're not. And it takes the old guard basically dying out. Max Planck said, science basically advances one funeral at a time. Famous physicist Max Planck. Because people die with their ideas, new people have to be brought up under the new underdog ideas for them to gain a foothold. And I do believe that is happening right now in medicine, both in mainstream medicine and alternative medicine. There are quite a lot of people with MD, medical doctor, behind their name on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube who are giving very similar advice to what I would give or, or what we say in this part of our business in nutrition. Many regular medical doctors are learning this, are learning that mainstream medicine was wrong about salt, was wrong about cholesterol and saturated fat, was wrong about many things, including vaccinations. That's one actually quite common thing I see now. A lot of younger, newer doctors, and some older ones too that have seen the light or that have known about it for a long time, many of them are now against vaccinations, or at least are vocal about the complications with it. It's not so straightforward that they just save lives. So this is happening. The old guard is dying out. And despite the recent attention to vaccines, and despite it, vaccines already being mandatory, especially in Canada, right before the pandemic, I was going through this long video someone wanted me to edit. It was about people fighting the Toronto District School Board on certain vaccines. This was always an ongoing issue on this political level, but my point was, in general, I think faith in vaccines at least prior to the pandemic, again, it was not all that high. I run into people all the time that don't get the flu shot, don't believe in that nonsense, don't see how injecting anything foreign into your body is going to help you. I might not agree with that statement. I'm just saying it's uh, a lot of common people that already don't believe in vaccines, and I think the old guard really truly is dying out. I think people believed in them most, maybe in the generation of my parents, you know, 60s, 70s. Since then, I don't think the average person is all that likely to believe this, especially if they read the details. So, continuing the text. Using the author's reference documents, it is clear that the most marked decline in deaths from whooping coughs occurred before the introduction of the vaccine in the late 1940s. Before. And they've got a graph here that indicates that. Since 1900, the deaths have already been going down when the vaccine was introduced in 1945. Looking at percent decline from peak, the author's data shows that the death rate from whooping cough in the United States had already fallen by approximately 92% before the vaccine was in widespread use and that the vaccine had no appreciable effect on the downward trend. The vaccine didn't do it, something else did it. Data from England and Wales is even more impressive, showing that the death rate from whooping cough had dropped by more than 99% before the use of the vaccine. The belief that vaccination was instrumental in the decline of death is not supported by the data. It was already 99% gone. 
Yet when reading the pediatrics paper, the reader, a doctor, would have accepted the belief that the vaccine was the only factor. This drives the behavior of doctors and their fear of pertussis as it drives them to push the vaccine even on those who don't want it. Doctors do not receive unbiased information in medical school or during their careers. In order for doctors to learn the full truth, they have to seek it and then deal with the resultant cognitive dissonance. It is very difficult to continue practicing medicine under conventional dictates once the truth is accepted. Now, once you know the vaccines don't work, it's very hard to continue practicing medicine. As Suzanne Humphreys would know, she also has an MD beside her name, medical doctor. So she talks more about all of this, more graphs. And the next point I saved is still in the whooping cough chapter. We can't even be sure how to tell when the immune system is not working right, let alone why not because we don't even have good metrics of what a healthy human immune system looks like. Despite billions spent on immune stimulants in supermarkets and drugstores last year, we don't know what, if anything, those really do, or what immune stimulant even means. And I'm not sure if I agree with that. By the way, sometimes I save points that I don't agree with, that I would like to challenge or argue with, maybe in one of my books, maybe in something like this. But that quote is from The Bodyguard, Tapping the Immune System's Secrets. That's from Stanford Medicine, 2011. B. Goldman's the author. And, you know, I would agree. There is very little agreement on what the immune system is, what it means. It's a very general thing because there's lots of things that are involved with the immune system. There's the probiotics. There's the nutrition that you need to build your own cells, like your white blood cells, your stem cells, you know, a whole bunch of other immune cells, too. You've got antioxidants, some of which are essential nutrients. Some of them are not. Some of them you produce in your own body. Those are to combat oxidative stress, because if you have too much oxidation in your body, free radical damage, then you have tissues that are damaged, a vascular system that's damaged and now stressed and now not working properly. You've got organs that are damaged, various tissues that are damaged, etc., etc. You're too weak to fight off things. But this is not one thing I'm describing. That's like three things that I just mentioned, and we could mention several more factors that are part of the immune system. When we measure things like free radicals or things like cytokines or C-reactive proteins, we see that sleep has an effect on them. Sleep, stress, and emotions have an effect on them. All kinds of things have an effect on these immune markers or inflammation markers. So clearly to me, in the holistic view, having a strong immune system means having a strong body and everything that matters for that matters for the immune system. A strong immune system is the result of all of those things combined. And if any one of those things gets knocked off too much, like you don't sleep for three days straight, you might get sick. And I didn't save this next point, but I thought I should read it. Whooping cough reports are now increasing despite very high vaccination rates. In fact, the disease rates, especially in young infants today, are even higher than they were when vaccine uptake was much lower. It wasn't until 1978 that pertussis vaccination was required for school entry in the United States. But at the same time, infants of age 6 to 8 weeks began to be vaccinated routinely. So rates are actually higher now with more vaccination. And the next point I saved is in the measles chapter. She's talking about a lot of harm here from measles vaccines. And the cases of measles that were caused by the vaccine, she's saying, The vaccine has essentially induced cases of measles that were either benign or crippling or deadly. And today, reports of modified measles are synonymous with attenuated vaccine virus cases. If they say modified measles, that means it was caused by a vaccine. And are available to anyone who does a literature search. 
Reports conclude that doctors should be considering vaccines strain measles infections in aseptic meningitis and encephalitis cases. So hey, maybe the measles vaccine causes these other problems as well. And she's talking about how they really don't know how the antibody count even fits into this. I said this in my book, Fake Diseases, that I don't think anybody really understands antibodies, to be honest. At least not in how it helps diagnostically. So here she's talking about the failed plan. Despite the greatly diminished danger of measles, news reports in 1965 urgently called for children to quickly be vaccinated against the disease. Sound familiar? Theoretical claims were made that a single shot would provide lifetime immunity. And they claimed these were all one-shot treatments that gave life immunity without serious side effects. Well, that was shown false on every level. Just like pretty much all vaccines, they say that you need multiple doses for it to work. And obviously it can cause the disease that they're trying to stop. And it can cause new diseases or just new symptoms. The plan began in 1963 with an expectation of eradication by 1967. They were going to get rid of measles by 1967 if enough of the right children were vaccinated. Right is in quotes. Gotta be children. Of course, the objective was not achieved. Not only was one shot insufficient, it turned out that even two could be insufficient. There was no telling if boosters had much effect past one year. By 1989, the new theory on failure to eradicate was that the earlier vaccines were not as effective as originally believed. They claimed that it was unstable, and it was not until 1980 that a stable live measles vaccine became available. In the same year, after three types of measles vaccines had failed to produce eradication or even predictable herd immunity, vaccine scientists changed course from one shot and stated that, in using the new live vaccine, two doses would be required for reliable protection. They also recommended that everyone under the age of 32 be revaccinated because the old vaccines they received were inadequate. The single shot once promised to provide lifelong immunity against measles in the 1960s was never produced. Outbreaks of measles continued into the 1990s, and she's saying that as still happens today, the unvaccinated or partially vaccinated were unjustly blamed for the outbreaks occurring in highly vaccinated populations. Most people are vaccinated, but it's the few that aren't. Yeah, they're to blame. That's why we got the sickness. A 1994 study indicated that as vaccination rates increased, measles became a disease of vaccinated people. This startling surprise challenged the theory that vaccine-induced herd immunity would protect against outbreak of measles. Multiple measles outbreaks have occurred in school populations in which 71 to 99.8% of the student body has been vaccinated appropriately. Starting at the time was the finding that measles outbreaks developed in these school populations even though more than 98% of the students had previously been vaccinated. In the particular case of measles, Herd immunity is not completely effective in preventing an outbreak of measles despite extraordinarily high immunization rates. Clear as day, vaccinate whoever you want, as many as you want. Vaccination does not stop disease. In the year 2000, measles was declared eliminated from the United States. However, in 2012, the CDC pulled back from that declaration, stating that measles reappeared and was spreading. Like the threat from polio, though, the danger was from abroad not the heavily vaccinated children of the United States. Of the total number of cases, 200 were attributed to foreign travel, but the source for 22 cases was never determined. No deaths or adverse outcomes were reported. It is clear that the reported measles incidence rate did decline, although it took much longer than originally promised and required more than one shot of a vaccine that had significant side effects, with all the unintended consequences and inherent unknowns. 
and we skip quite a bit further for the next page, but we're still in the measles chapter. Big chapter, big book with big chapters here. Looks like I saved the whole page. She's talking about vitamins C and A here. The efficacy of the cellular immune system is tied to the intake of dietary nutrients, including vitamin A, vitamin C, zinc, selenium, and protein rich in vitamin B. Poor nutrition leads to impaired cellular immune responses, which results in worse outcomes after measles infection or exposure. I 100% agree. Those are only just a few of the 90 essential nutrients, some of the more important ones for sure. When the body fights any infection, especially measles, vitamin A stores become depleted by various mechanisms. Measles infections and high teeter measles vaccines both impair cell-mediated immunity, in part because of vitamin A depletion. Some of that depletion is a result of consumption by the epithelial cells of the body, and some is due to rapid immune cell turnover. Yeah, immune cells are some of the fastest growing cells. This is also why hair, for example, often falls out with chemotherapy patients, radiation patients, because the cells that reproduce rapidly, those are the ones that are most affected by radiation and chemotherapy. So the immune cells, our bacterial cells, our hair cells, all those things rapidly regenerate. Some tissues take a lot longer. And cancer cells replicate rapidly, right? That's sort of what we're getting at here. They're trying to kill cancer cells, which divide rapidly, but they also end up killing a bunch of other cells in our body, especially those that divide rapidly, especially our immune system. That's why people's immune system gets so weak when they go through cancer treatments. And why people with so-called AIDS, who have been on a bunch of drugs, they might die from pneumonia, because their immune system is non-existent anymore. Back to the text. A low vitamin A level due to malnutrition or dietary insufficiency sets the stage for an even worse outcome. Death from secondary infections is a known risk during measles, but it is mostly because of the depressed cellular immune responses due to vitamin deficiencies. Measles remains one of the leading causes of childhood mortality in countries where malnutrition, poor sanitation, and inadequate medical care are prevalent. Measles is often a fatal disease among socioeconomically deprived children in tropical countries. This also explains why during the 1800s and into the 1900s, when the general nutritional status of the Western world was improving, there was a dramatic decrease in deaths from measles. In the 1920s, it was theorized that vitamin A could be used to fight disease. Dubbed the anti-infective vitamin, doctors found that it was effective against a variety of infections. And she gives a lot of citations here, by the way. I'm not going to give you every citation and every doctor's name. Sometimes I just say doctors, so it's easier to listen to for you. It was reported in 1932 that well-nourished children rarely died or had serious complications from measles, even without sulfonamides and other primitive antibiotics. As early as 1932, scientists found that mortality dropped by 58% when children hospitalized with measles were given cod liver oil, which contains vitamins A and D and omega-3 fatty acids. Look at that. Mortality dropped 58%. Cod liver oil. In the 1970s, there were calls to ensure increases in dietary vitamin A for the management of measles in developing countries. In 1987, scientists in Tanzania used vitamin A during measles outbreaks and watched the impressive protective effects. And during the 1990s, when mortality reductions of 60 to 90% were measured in poor countries using vitamin A in hospitalized measles cases, there was even more publicity of the vitamin A depletion theory in measles mortality and morbidity. Combined analysis showed that massive doses of vitamin A given to patients hospitalized with measles were associated with an approximately 60% reduction in the risk of death overall, and with an approximate 90% reduction among infants, 
administration of vitamin A to children who develop pneumonia before or during hospital stay reduced mortality by about 70% compared with controlled children. Pretty impressive there on vitamin A. By 2010, it was well accepted that supplementing with vitamin A during acute measles illness led to significant drops in both adverse outcomes and death. This is in 2010. Mortality could be reduced by 80% in acute measles with complications following high-dose vitamin A supplementation. 80%. In the United States, studies have found that vitamin A deficiency is not just a thing of the past. Even children with normal diets were vitamin deficient upon measles infection. A 1992 California study showed that 50% of the children hospitalized with measles had a vitamin A deficiency. 50%. But there was also vitamin A deficiency in 30% of the sick controls who did not have measles. None of the uninfected controls showed significant deficiency. That's important. And I always have to point out here, we're talking about one individual nutrient. We promote the idea that there are at least 90 essential nutrients. We call them the mighty 90. But in reality, that's just a catchphrase. If we want to get nitpicky about it, there's easily over 100 essential nutrients and probably all the way up to 200. So when you see such striking figures for just one nutrient, expect the good results to improve when you add more nutrients. Expect the good results to improve when you're looking at or administering more than one nutrient. So if you see a 50% result with just vitamin C, imagine what happens when you add the other 89 essential nutrients. Another point here, could even well-nourished children have suboptimal vitamin A levels due to being vaccinated? Naturally acquired measles and measles vaccination both deplete the body of vitamin A. Quoting a study here, previous studies have shown excess mortality and immune abnormalities among girls immunized with high-tier measles vaccines two to four years after immunization. Our results showed that serum vitamin A concentrations were depressed after measles vaccination, irrespective of whether it was the non-valent or combined measles vaccine. So it doesn't matter which type of vaccine, the serum vitamin A went down. And the unexpected consequence of measles vaccination, they're saying here, was due to reduced vitamin A levels from the vaccine, because that increases susceptibility to other infections. That's one of the symptoms of vitamin A deficiency susceptibility to infection or lowered immune system. Quoting another article in another journal here, high teeter vaccines like natural measles cause long-term disruption of immune function, including imbalance of the type of helper T cell response. The message is clear. Strategies involving vaccination in infants with maternal antibody or new measles vaccines must be tested in randomized trials in which the endpoint is mortality and not a surrogate effect such as measles antibody teeter. So, a lot of these things are being sold as useful based on antibody measures. And I always question antibody measures, especially if we're talking about HIV AIDS, because I don't care what somebody's antibodies are. What symptoms do you have? Right? My job is to help people get healthy, literally. And I have a simple questionnaire. I ask how old they are, how much they weigh, what country they live in, if they have their organs, if they're on any drugs... What symptoms do they have? What diagnoses do they have? And some other questions, but I don't care what their antibodies are. I don't need to ask about antibodies. What symptoms do you have? And if we do something, we change something, we add something, we take something away, do we get a good result or a bad result or a neutral result? Nothing happened. This is all I care about. And that's what should matter when it comes to disease diagnosing. We should be looking at symptoms, not looking at 
antibodies. So they're saying that in order to find out if vaccines really work, studies need to be conducted that are looking at mortality. How many people died versus how many people did not die? Forgetting about antibodies. And of course, measles vaccine has been associated with other unexpected adverse findings in long-term studies. In developing countries, use of the high teeter vaccine at four to six months of age was associated with an unexpectedly high mortality in girls by the age of two years from infectious childhood illness. So you give babies measles vaccines, they die of infectious childhood illness. And now they're talking about vitamin C and D. I did a deep dive on both vitamin C and D here on the podcast, by the way. Those are separate episodes. You can check them out. They're saying here, bacterial superinfection during a virus infection is usually due to vitamin C and D deficiency. Butler reported that bacterial pneumonia was not significantly associated with lower vitamin A levels. That makes sense since vitamin C and D have important roles in combating bacterial infections. Right, they didn't find vitamin A deficiency, so that's okay. Other nutrients are involved in the immune system, especially vitamin C and D. Nutrient levels may seem lacking today, but during the 1800s, when disease mortality was more than nine times higher, nutrient levels were far worse. Back then, people were dying of scurvy, and today we are simply having illness that doctors don't connect to focal or subclinical scurvy. Yeah, subclinical scurvy, I think, is very, very common. Overall, society is much better nourished today than 200 years ago. Nutrient deficiency is known to have a direct effect on the virulence of microorganisms. This means that a nutrient-deficient neighbor can actually influence your health. Current work suggests that not only can the nutritional status of the host affect the immune response, but it can also affect the viral pathogen. A benign strain of Cox virus became virulent and caused myocarditis in selenium and vitamin E-deficient mice. Hey, we say that all the time, myocarditis, people are talking about that now, cardiomyopathy, heart attack, this is selenium deficiency, we've been saying this for years, selenium and vitamin E work directly together, they're all part of the 90 essential nutrients, and here in vitamin E and selenium deficient mice, they gave up a nine strain of Coxsackie virus B3, and it caused myocarditis. It changed an avirulent virus into a virulent one. Once these mutations occurred, even mice with normal nutriture developed disease from the mutated virus. That's the word it used there, nutriture. Normal nutriture. That's weird. This raises an interesting argument in terms of herd immunity, but for some reason, we never see nutrition being mentioned in media ads that warn of disease epidemics. That's because the nutrition companies, the ones that are not owned by pharmaceutical companies, don't usually have much money for advertising, actually. Pharmaceutical companies, they spend their money marketing their big patents. And nutrients can't be patented. You can get a nutritional formula. They do. They market Centrum for men and women, and one a day, and a few other big brands of single nutritional products. But yeah, in general, even though the overall market for supplements and nutrients is big, you don't see a lot of advertising money being put into it. Even the company that I represent, that I distribute for, they make supplements, but they don't pay any advertising. They pay distributors like me. And we only get paid if we sign someone up, make a sale, get a customer. And their business model really works because we're the ones that do the marketing, not the company. And many companies operate just like us. Direct sales, they call it, right? It's direct to the customer, usually through a distributor, instead of you seeing an ad somewhere. 
And by the way, the reason I think that system works for nutrients is because it does mostly spread by word of mouth. People get results from nutritional products and they tell people about it. They tell their friends, they tell their family. It's because it gets good results. But that's not how pharmaceuticals are spread. People don't go around saying, oh, you got to get on my diabetes medication, right? It's a whole different thing. The nutritional industry moves forward based on good results. The pharmaceutical industry moves forward based on aggressive marketing. And moving forward to the next point I saved, we're quite deep in the book now. I know I've skipped a lot of juicy details, whole bunch of context here. And this point, they're talking still or again about vitamin C. They're talking about an 1873 report that discussed the poor quality of food available in U.S. cities. Right, So this is a huge part of the thing here where a lot of people are talking about terrain theory and stuff. This means that in this time period, especially in the 1800s, sanitation was terrible, nutrition was terrible. A lot of lives were really terrible, especially in cities. So you think about stress, lack of sleep, lack of proper toilets and plumbing, running water, hot water, all this stuff. It's no wonder they were getting all kinds of sicknesses. And obviously, once we started to change those conditions, diseases started to go away one by one. And I do also think that this is a result of poorly inhabited cities, primarily. It's long been shown that people in the country are healthier than people in the city, in aggregate. So where a lot of these outbreaks are happening, of course, they happen to be in cities as well. This is where some of the worst conditions were. If you had a homestead, it still doesn't really matter if you have running water or not or proper toilets or not because you have land, you might have a river, have your own well, you got a clean water source there. You're not throwing your waste into the basement as they were doing in Victorian England or New York around the same time. There weren't piles of horse manure everywhere because everyone was using horses on the streets. And here they're talking about rancid meats and all this stuff and then they go back into vitamin C. And I'm not going to read that whole thing about vitamin C that I saved because I did do that whole vitamin C deep dive before here. And the next point I saved is in a chapter called Lost Remedies, and it's about silver, colloidal silver. Colloidal silver is a liquid suspension of microscopic silver particles. It is still recommended by many in the alternative medicine field as a broad-spectrum anti-infective agent. In 1901, Dr. Dworsky reported on 10 cases in which he used silver to treat various types of serious infections. The patients all greatly improved with the treatment, and many were described as being entirely cured within a short period of time. And quoting Dworsky here, Colloidal silver has the property of killing and destroying all the pathogenic bacteria that may be circulating in the blood after they have broken through the natural barriers that oppose their entrance into the circulation and probably also of neutralizing their toxins and rendering them harmless. The action of this metallic antitoxin was manifested by the rapid disappearance of all the systems of general intoxication, the fall in temperature, and the improvement in the pulse that was apparent in all cases. There is a great future before this new remedy, which is one of the most reliable weapons for the combating of septic wound infection and septic general infection. And notice how he says here there is great future for this. That was in 1902, 121 years ago at this moment. And chances are, if you ask your doctor about colloidal silver, he'll either not know anything about it, say that it's probably harmful, say that it could be harmful. He might say that it could turn you blue, which is a silver salt. It's not colloidal silver at all. 
and you have to take it for years upon years for that to happen. And if you continue taking something that makes you blue, you're an idiot. But colloidal silver has long been known, obviously since at least 1902, to be extraordinarily effective in killing and destroying all the pathogenic bacteria that may be circulating in the blood. In 1918, during the flu pandemic, when millions died, an outbreak of influenza aboard a ship appeared to have been successfully controlled through the use of colloidal silver applied to the eyes and nose. During a part of the month of September 1918, the ship was moored to the dock at Norfolk, Virginia. An influenza epidemic was in evidence, so the crew was immediately restricted to ship. Plans were devised by the medical officer by which the disease might be retarded in its rapid spread. A prophylactic treatment consisting of colloidal silver, 10% in the eyes and nose twice each daily, proved very successful in every way, as the cases developing in the crew diminished rapidly. These successful interventions were all essentially forgotten. If they had become more widely used and used in combination, they may have changed the worldview of disease management into one that supports what nature has already provided. Instead, the dominant medical paradigm stepped up and employed diseased animal matter injections into the skin of healthy people to supposedly impart immunity. Yeah, I kind of didn't read you that whole history of how they actually make these vaccines. It is pretty bizarre. And I believe the final chapter here, this last chapter is called Belief and Fear. Belief and fear are powerful influences to the psyche. Because hierarchical powers have exploited these human vulnerabilities, they have unfortunately shaped the world. They're shaping the world through belief and fear. People are led to believe that because the world is a dangerous place, only governments and large institutions can provide protection because they are bigger and more knowledgeable than small communities. Rules and restrictions are put in place. Those who believe this lose trust in their own capability and thus surrender thinking and decision-making to others, to the government. Doctors are no exception to this phenomena. Medical practitioners cede their independent thinking to texts, advisory panels, and traditions, which vary depending on political influences of the times. In medical school, doctors are taught to view the human body as a random mistake-ridden vessel that has to be forced into submission with surgery, antibiotics, antihypertensives, antihistamines, anti-inflammatories, and other medical interventions. Remember, she is a medical doctor here. She was taught this as well. The natural extension of this paradigm over the past hundred years has been for the medical profession to condition human beings not to trust anyone but certified medical doctors to fix these defective aberrations of creation. In the late 1800s, Dr. Charles Creighton wrote a comprehensive report that was published in the Encyclopedia Britannica. His contribution, which presented a great deal of detail, found many serious problems with the medically promoted procedure of the time called vaccination. He critiqued numerous facets, including the history of Edward Jenner's discovery, risks of vaccination, effectiveness of vaccination, and revaccination, and vaccination legislation. That's one of my biggest problems with it, legislation. I don't really care if people want to volunteer to have yeah, dead animal matter and mercury and other weird preservatives and things that we can't even pronounce. I don't care if you want to have that injected into your body, but I have a big problem with legislation, with anyone being forced to do so. And I do think you should have the knowledge to make your own choices about these things. And if the benefits, which are you know basically non-existent, if those were made clear to you at the beginning and the risks were made clear, I doubt anyone would get vaccinations unless they were actually forced to. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. But why have a system that's forcing poison onto people? This doesn't make sense. Even actual drugs, like they have their harms as well, for sure. But at least they have a direct purpose. Like we would argue with it, but statin drugs do lower cholesterol, right? They actually do the thing. We can argue about maybe we don't want to lower cholesterol. Maybe there's another reason why the cholesterol is high. Maybe there's different types of cholesterol. Maybe there's more going on than we know. But you see what I'm saying? There's a direct measurable effect. Doctors might think it's desirable to lower blood pressure with a drug. We don't think it's desirable, but at least they are able to actually lower it and show that it's lowered. So back to the text. His piece also contained numerous data tables that did not reinforce the benefit of vaccination, including figures of deaths from the skin disease after smallpox vaccination. By 1903, the Encyclopedia Britannica contained the same piece, but with all the tables removed. By 1922, Dr. Creighton's vaccination contribution was completely eliminated and replaced by a new entry, vaccine therapy. This item contained only a brief paragraph that referred to the original smallpox vaccine invented by Edward Jenner. It stated that smallpox vaccination provided immunity, and if by chance smallpox was contracted in a vaccinated person, the disease would only run a mild course. The rest of the article discussed different applications of vaccine therapy and concluded that vaccination would eventually find even more applications and become recognized as an important tool to combat disease. Ideology and myth had displaced verified historical documentation. The history of the phenomenally successful non-vaccinating experience in Leicester, the documented vaccine-related diseases and deaths, the 1872 smallpox pandemic, the fact that smallpox had shifted to a mild disease in spite of declining vaccination rates, the spreading of foot and mouth disease via vaccines, and the amazingly successful use of apple cider vinegar against smallpox were all trampled under the heels of conventional medicine's growing dominance. The new literature that was distributed to the public and doctors was predominantly mythology about Jenner's great discovery. From here, the idea of dangerous germs and life-saving vaccines came to dominate medical and societal thinking. Vaccination was successfully implanted into the minds of the masses as the most effective means to prevent disease. Next came diphtheria antitoxin in 1895, and then diphtheria vaccination started in 1920. A cascade of research on vaccines for other diseases was subsequently funded and pursued with great enthusiasm. Not surprisingly, after 1900, while provocation polio was on the rise, so was the practice of many intramuscular injections for many vaccines and medical treatments. And they give this huge list 
of vaccines here that were used in New Zealand at the end of 1911. That list might seem bizarre, but the same type of bamboozlement was occurring in the United States. Senate hearing minutes from 1972 reveal the details of the 32 worthless vaccines, the worthless vaccines that are in quotes there, that were licensed and on the market. The estimated cost of the vaccines, which were of little value and perhaps even harmful, in quotes, was estimated to be astronomical. Some of the vaccines had been on the market for 20 years. And I gave a big list of 32 vaccines that were considered worthless. From the beginning, vaccination was promoted by vastly exaggerating the benefits and unrealized promises were repeatedly made. Whenever possible, any problems or disasters were concealed from the public. In the early 1900s, Dr. Charles O'Kell, a high-ranking expert in the field of infectious diseases, wrote numerous articles published in a wide variety of medical journals. He pioneered the first attempts on himself using a scarlet fever bacteria toxin in the United States. Shortly before his premature death in 1939, he wrote his final work, which was effectively a deathbed confession. In it, he noted the gross distortion of the benefits of vaccination and the concealment of mistakes. Quoting him now, The immunization of the masses has been undertaken with almost a religious fervor. The enthusiast rarely stopped to wonder where it would all finish or whether the fulsome promises made to the public in the form of propaganda would ever be honored. Without propaganda, there can, of course, be no large-scale immunization. But how perilous is it to mix up propaganda with scientific fact? If we baldly told the whole truth, it is doubtful whether the public would submit to immunization. Hey, I said that earlier. If people only knew, they wouldn't do it. Accidents and mistakes must inevitably happen, and when they take place, what might have been a highly instructive lesson is usually suppressed or distorted out of recognition. Those who have had to take detailed notice of the immunization accidents of the past few years know that to get to the truth of what really happened generally calls for the resources of something like the Secret Service. That was in 1938 he was saying that. During this time of vaccine obsession, and this was the paragraph I actually saved here, by the way, at the end, but I thought I'd just read you this whole closing argument here. During this time of vaccine obsession, infectious agents were mistakenly envisaged as causative for many medical conditions. Pellagra caused diarrhea, dermatitis, dementia, and death. And we've talked a lot about pellagra here on this podcast, too. Today it is known to be caused by a niacin or tryptophan deficiency. However, there was a time when doctors believed that pellagra was induced by a virus. They thought everything was caused by a virus or a germ at one point. Perceived risk of a disease seems to increase after the development of a vaccine. So they develop a vaccine and then they go and market the risk. Hey, did you know you're at risk for hepatitis C? Hey, did you know you're at risk for HPV? Maybe you should get this vaccine. Perceived risk of a disease seems to increase after the development of a vaccine. For instance, measles and chickenpox were widely thought to be routine childhood illnesses until the vaccines were available. Then, concern over complications of infection moved to the forefront of discussion. After the risks were broadcast, fear set in, and most people quickly gave up their responsibility in decision-making. They thought they were accepting a smaller risk to avoid a bigger one. Belief and fear merge and keep the majority obedient to vaccine mandates. There have been some protests from parents who knew measles and chicken pox were normal and harmless childhood illnesses, but eventually those voices became silent. 
opposition to vaccination was and still is deemed to be only from those who don't understand science and, because of their foolhardy resistance, can bring on more disease and death. From his 2011 book, Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All, Dr. Paul Offit, yeah, I read a book by that guy too, and I didn't know that he was one of the uh, most like prominent pro-vaccine people out there. And some of these other newer books that I've been reading have gone into some of his shady doings and his shady history. Paul Offit. Watch out for that guy, Paul Offit. Here he is discussing his belief in Edward Jenner and the first vaccine. In 1796, Edward Jenner invented a vaccine that eliminated smallpox from the face of the earth. In 1898, the British government finally gave in, appeasing angry citizens by passing a conscientious objection law. People who didn't want to get a vaccine didn't have to. Within a year, the government issued more than 200,000 certificates of conscientious objection. By the late 1890s, vaccine rates plummeted. In Leicester, 80% of babies were unvaccinated. Anti-vaccine forces had won the day. As a result, England became Europe's epicenter of smallpox disease and death. For anti-vaccine activists in England, the freedom to choose had become the freedom to die from that choice. Back to the main book here. What is conspicuously missing is evidence to support the statements made. Data and graphs are not presented to prove what he says, which in turn influences what other doctors believe. Paul Offit simply makes the statement that England had become an epicenter of smallpox disease and death in the late 1800s. The belief that Offit is an expert in infectious diseases, and thus an expert on the history of vaccination, overrides any need for his readers to request proof of his statements. In a 2011 article, Sad Omer made a similar statement on how the decrease in the use of smallpox vaccination resulted in a resurgence of smallpox. The decline in vaccination was, according to Omer, a result of irregular physicians who did not follow the orthodox medical model. Statements like this that influence mass belief are not born through evidence or historical documentation. In many places of the world, including Leicester, England, vaccination rates had been high throughout the 1800s. Strict laws in England, Massachusetts, Chicago, and other places ensured extremely high vaccination rates of 90% or more. Despite this, there were repeat epidemics of smallpox which accumulated in the 1872 smallpox pandemic that killed large numbers throughout the world even in populations that were highly vaccinated. By the late 1880s, vaccination rates had declined in Leicester and in England. Conventional thinking of the time falsely predicted that there would be a resurgence of disease and death from smallpox as it would spread like wildfire through the unvaccinated population. Despite the dire predictions, the Leicester method was effectively implemented in place of vaccination for the next 60 years. And she's pointing to a graph here and. The graph shows that there was almost always a spike in smallpox deaths coincident with increased vaccination coverage. This fact is opposite to conventional medical belief. More vaccination, more death. There were those in the medical community who were relieved that the failure of compulsory vaccination never gained much public scrutiny. Instead, the focus was shifted to new types of vaccinations. All of the problems from smallpox vaccination have long been forgotten. Officially recorded deaths from cowpox and other effects of vaccination, including the dreaded skin conditions, are never mentioned. Jaundice and syphilis were also spread through the practice of arm-to-arm -arm vaccination. Smallpox vaccination's virtually unchallenged belief momentum has existed for so many decades that it is rarely contemplated, let alone challenged. 
Most history books that make mention of Edward Jenner's discovery quickly conclude, without any or with only scant evidence, that it was only of enormous benefit. That's all it was. Edward Jenner, he saved everyone. That's what they say. Some mention in more detail the anti-vaccine movement, but it is always cast in the light that foolish, uneducated protesters were in dangerous opposition to settled science. In actuality, the facts show the opposite of the belief. As vaccination rates declined in England, so did the deaths from smallpox. And they do have the graphs to show that. This final chapter here is actually a bit longer than I thought. They also go into Paul Offit talking once again about whooping cough. It's a devastating infection. But the vaccine came in and saved everybody. But now warning that it's going to come back because we're not vaccinating anymore, apparently. And they show here that by the time the Pertussis vaccine was introduced in the late 1940s, the total deaths were on average much lower than they used to say. So they were saying that there were 7,000 average deaths, but actually there was only about 1,200. So they're inflating the numbers to say whatever they want or decreasing the numbers to say whatever they want. And they're saying what is more notable is that during those 20 years, the population increased by about 25%. Such a large increase in population makes it important to determine a normalized death rate. From normalized numbers, we can see that the deaths per 100,000 had decreased by 85% during those 20 years. The odds of dying from whooping cough had dramatically decreased from 1 in 15,625 to 1 in 125,000. This change occurred before the use of any vaccine. The clear downward trend in the death rate before the introduction of the vaccine is never acknowledged, right? It was already going down. Why don't they ever talk about that? Vaccine saved the day, but the problem was already on its way out. Many vaccine enthusiasts claim that antibiotics were also responsible for the decline in mortality and morbidity, but the death rate from whooping cough had been declining since the 1920s, long before antibiotics were used in the United States. An examination of the data from 1920 onward shows a continuous downward trend in the death rate from whooping cough. All the way to 1970, continuous downward decline. If the pertussis vaccination was important to the overall decline in deaths, there should be a large noticeable drop in the death rate shortly after the introduction of the vaccine. Yet there is no observable effect. So whatever Paul Offit was saying is not supported by the data. In the 1970s, England experienced a large drop in pertussis vaccination rates. The data shows that there was no massive increase in deaths, as would have been expected if vaccination impacted mortality. Right? If vaccines were saving lives and people stop vaccinating, deaths should go up, right? No, they don't. And this goes on for the DTP vaccination as well. Deaths from 1974, when vaccination rates were near the peak of 77%, were about the same as the year with the lowest vaccination rate of 31% in 1978. So change the vaccination rates doesn't change the disease rates. And deaths were highest in 1971 when vaccination rates were at their peak. So the official data does not match Paul Offit's declaration that Pertussis vaccine is responsible for the enormous decline in deaths. And there's a similar interpretation of historical data on measles. In a 1980 paper from the American Journal of Public Health, the authors state death rates due to measles have paralleled measles case rates and have shown a striking decline since the licensure of measles vaccine in 1963. The authors include a graph showing a large decline in measles deaths after 1963. This information is presented as a logarithmic graph that magnifies the small change in the death rate after 1963. On the other hand, 
Another graph displaying the percent decline from the peak death using the exact same data shows that before 1963, the death rate had already decreased by more than 98%. A striking decline of 98% before 1963 is not mentioned at all by the study authors. All right, so there's some deliberate obfuscation here, I believe, many people believe. And there's lots of other examples here cited of kind of people saying the same thing. Oh, this vaccine caused this disease to go down, yet all you got to do is look earlier in the data set and see that it's already gone down. It's already almost disappeared by the time they put in the vaccine. And now they discuss here perhaps one of the saddest chronicles of medical betrayal is a case report of student nurses who succumbed to lupus after they underwent vaccination with typhoid paratyphoid vaccines followed by numerous mandatory scarlet fever toxin injections. All were healthy upon admission to nursing school and all died about one year after vaccination following drawn out painful illnesses. And I'm not going to read uh, the painful description, but they say here this is the reason that most people haven't heard of the scarlet fever vaccine. Vaccination belief today will hold up better if nobody knows about it. And lots of graphs here about diseases on their way out well before the vaccine was introduced. And I'm skipping a bunch here. And I'll just read the closing statements here. The belief momentum is so great that the authors of these types of books never take into consideration the possibility that there could be a fundamental problem with their base assumption, and neither does the media that supports them or their readers. The authors become another layer in this false belief, which further builds upon itself. Those who accept the belief are accepted by the group. Anyone who questions the belief in vaccination is attacked and vilified, both within and outside the medical profession. Vaccine faith is supposed to be unquestioned because history has allegedly demonstrated the value of vaccination. Do you think it has? Fundamentally, we must evaluate the soundness of all ideas no matter how deeply ingrained. Often, when one objectively searches for information, facts are uncovered that can be in shocking contrast to the original understanding. The truth may be uncomfortable, inconvenient, and unpopular, but in the end, if it is the truth, it must be embraced regardless of the cost. Year after year, layer after layer, the vaccine belief built upon itself until children are subjected to dozens of vaccines by second grade. Most parents are uncomfortable with this barrage of chemicals, disease, and animal residual. They pray and worry after their children are injected. If they seem unscathed after a few days, they think all is well, and they did a good thing. They may not consider the potential for long-term effects from vaccines or the complete absence of safety data on the vaccine program their children are participating in. What if the hierarchy is wrong? What if the idea of vaccination is fundamentally flawed? What if we have yet to see the real effects of the immunity of the herd? To date, despite the existence of thousands of never vaccinated children, there has not been a completely vaccinated versus never vaccinated study to compare the difference between short and long-term health of both groups. Nobody, not even the most educated immunologists, understands or can describe the complete cascade of events that occurs after injecting a vaccine. If physicians realized how little is known today about the immune system and vaccines, they would be duty-bound to tell patients that there are no accurate scientific answers. Because the whole truth isn't told, adults are the only line of defense for themselves. Until the minds of pediatricians are emancipated, patients will remain the best line of defense for their children. The reality is that vaccinology, as portrayed to the public today, amounts to writing religion on the back of ignorance. And that's it. That's the closing statement of the book. 
And I'm going to make some comments here about vaccines before we close out. So one of the most common things we get asked about vaccines is how to detox from it. Now, in general, we don't like to put a lot of emphasis on detox because detox is probably the most overrated concept in the whole alternative health world. The body's a detox machine. Everything that we do to support the body should also support its ability to detox. The body's always trying to detox. So our basic message is to be as healthy as possible. Don't eat processed foods beyond all 90 essential nutrients because your body needs them in every organ, in every tissue, including the detox organs like the liver. So the body will do the work. I know there are a ton of different products and herbs and nutrients that are promoted for detox. We just don't promote detox like this. We promote 90 essential nutrients for being healthy and under the assumption that when you're healthy, your body will be doing its best to detox. And I have seen some studies that are coming out recently, some posts, people are talking about this, that they are using a whole bunch of different compounds and are apparently seeing success, especially with detoxing from this most recent COVID vaccine thing. I just don't want to go into those specifics. Our basic program has more than 90 nutrients in it. It has the 90 essentials, but more than 90. Almost all of these different plant compounds that you hear about, we use in our regular products anyways. And many different plants get very similar results medicinally. So I'm not worried about those specifics. If you choose to take any of those specific things that are promoted for detox, that's fine. It's just not our wheelhouse. We're most concerned with giving you the fundamentals that you need to be healthy. And you should be detoxing. And by the way, we've seen this again and again with hair analysis as well. People would come in, get a hair analysis, start our program, take some of our suggestions, get rid of some bad foods, add some foods in, add some supplements, whatever they did. They come back for their second hair analysis and you can see their heavy metals went down. Most of the time their parasites went away. Didn't even do anything about parasites. We just supported the body and it got rid of a bunch of the bad stuff on its own. So what should you do if you want to detox from the vaccine? A lot of people ask that directly. What should you do? You should do our basic program. You should start with the questionnaire. When you reach out to us, we give you the questionnaire. If it looks obvious that you have a blood sugar problem, boom, we're gonna focus on that. We're gonna support the blood sugar with the 90 essential nutrients and extra blood sugar support. If it looks like a thyroid problem, we're gonna do the same except with thyroid support instead of blood sugar support, etc., etc. For all the different problems, if you have no symptoms at all, like you come to us and the only thing you're concerned about is detoxing the vaccine, okay, get off all the bad foods, get on the 90 essential nutrients. You don't need extra specific support if you don't have extra specific problems. And it should be as simple as that, it really should be. And I'm not going to labor the point because I don't really know. All the mainstream world says basically you can't detox from the COVID vaccine, you can't undo it. Well, I don't know, but I know the body is a miracle of healing, especially the human body. We get animals all the time too, dogs and cats and stuff. I'm nowhere near as confident with a dog or a cat as I am with a human. Humans have consciousness, and I do think that that is the factor that gives us such incredible healing power and the ability to withstand such incredible abuse. Human beings can withstand decades of eating pure junk food we can withstand torture, hard labor, all kinds of things for decades. 
The human body really is a miracle. The amount of things that can withstand, the way that it can heal so miraculously from such huge problems, again, in ways that I don't expect with animals. I have a lot of faith in the human body and in the idea that giving it what it needs, it will do its best. Does that mean you'll get to 100%? I don't know. Does that mean you can undo the COVID vaccine? I'm not even sure what that means at this point. And you shouldn't need a reason to do all the right things. You should do all the right things right away, right now. And if you do have concern about damage from vaccines or something like that, we'll support your body extra. Do more than just the basic 90. Add extra selenium. Add a little bit of extra vitamin C. I personally like to take huge antioxidant doses and round my body weight up a little bit so I'm getting a little bit more vitamins and minerals for my body weight. And I'm not worried about detox. That's not my concern. I already want to go a little bit overboard because there are so many stresses and pressures and toxins and all this stuff in our environment and our lifestyles. I want to support the body extra. Okay, now finally, I want to talk about what I consider the real problem with vaccines. Because in this deep dive here, I only read you the points that were relevant to me back in 2016. And even back then, I already knew a fair bit. So I don't think I saved the points about how they actually make vaccines and the technical details there. So right now, I'll go through that. And I'd like to start that by saying I don't actually even have a problem with vaccine theory itself. The idea that exposing the body to a pathogen can build its resistance. In fact, I sell a product that does something very, very similar. It's a very interesting product. It's called I-26, hyperimmune egg powder. And that same stuff is also in our microbiome, our ultimate microbiome. And that's one of the reasons why microbiome is my overall favorite digestion support product. But I-26, it's not really a digestion product, just that ingredient is in the microbiome. But the concept of I-26 is very similar to a vaccine, one that actually works. Because keep in mind, one of the problems that we have with vaccines is they've got all these preservatives, which are like poisons, mercury and aluminum and so on, because they say they can't keep the biological material stable without those adjuvants and additives. Well, here with the hyperimmune egg powder, the biologic activity stays intact. What they do is they take chickens and they expose them to 26 pathogens. And I actually think it's more than 26 now. I think they just kept the name 26. They expose the chickens to pathogens. They lay eggs that are hyperimmune to those pathogens. They turn those eggs into powder and that's what I-26 is. It's hyperimmune egg powder. And that's all it is. There's no other ingredients. When we put that stuff in the body, and I-26 has been studied by the way. There's legit studies about this showing the results that it actually does work. Once you put that stuff in the body, the body actually takes on those hyperimmune qualities and can actually destroy those pathogens. And I think this is why we get such very impressive and wide-ranging results with this product and the microbiome. I've seen results in everything from migraines and aches and pains all the way to cancer. In fact, Dr. Glenn Winkle, who's been involved with this product for over 20 years, and I've interviewed him. He's part of our company, Longevity, because we own this company now that makes the I-26. And he was the first one that I heard talk about the cancer benefits. And actually, that was a big part of his talk. That was a big part of his interest in the product was about cancer. And I just said, all there is to this product, other than it being an egg itself, which has its own nutritional value, 
really the only thing it's doing is providing hyperimmunity to those pathogens. Now, you guys have probably heard a lot of people talking about recently how they believe that cancer is caused by parasites. Well, I agree, they're onto something because with hair analysis, we can see that almost everybody has parasites in them at any given time, some type of parasite. And I would expect that to be especially true for anybody with a serious health problem. Their overall system is compromised even more. I've seen perfectly healthy people have parasites on their skin. And so if we see results with cancer with this product, I assume that's it. It's because it's killing the pathogens that were actually causing the fundamental stress on the body, which was causing the cancer. I assume other things are going to be involved as well, nutrient deficiencies and other toxins and stuff, circulation problem, blood sugar problem, etc. But if you knock out the major antagonist, that should actually knock out the problem or much of it. So I-26 actually goes deeper than that. I have posted content where Glenn Winkle discusses it with Dr. Glidden, and I've discussed it with him myself. These are on the Wallace Warriors YouTube channel. And he's been on record for years talking about this, and as I mentioned, there are studies. And it's very impressive that it can both upregulate the immune system to deal with problems and downregulate it so your actual immune markers improve or your markers of inflammation improve. It really is amazing, and I'm saying this is why I actually believe the vaccine theory at its core, that exposing ourselves to pathogens, maybe they're not doing it correctly in the needle version, but at least this I-26 version makes sense to me, and I've seen the results. So when it comes to what the actual problem with vaccines are, to me, it has nothing to do with the actual virus or bacteria or whatever it is. I don't care about a virus. And when thinking about the harms from vaccine, I don't care about the virus. I highly doubt that they work at all, but that's actually debatable of whether exposure to the actual pathogen itself, whether it's been deactivated or not. It may have some result. I don't know, and I don't care. Because my actual problem with vaccines has nothing to do with that. It's got nothing to do with germ theory. It's got nothing to do with vaccine theory. It's got nothing to do with the germs themselves. I have two problems with vaccines, two major problems with vaccines. The first problem is proteins getting into the blood. Proteins are not supposed to be in the blood. This means any food component, any piece of food, sugar, egg protein, all of that, none of it should be in the blood. The body is supposed to consume food and in the mouth and stomach, it starts to break apart proteins and break apart carbs. So it's breaking proteins down into individual amino acids. That is what's supposed to happen in the mouth and stomach. So that when it goes into the intestine, it's already free amino acids, right? Proteins are made of amino acids. They're supposed to be all broken up into amino acids so they can be absorbed into the blood. Because we're supposed to have amino acids in the blood, not proteins. Proteins are much longer chains. And your body is supposed to recognize those as an immune threat. It's supposed to mobilize an immune response to food particles in the blood. This is what's supposed to happen. Your body's working correctly if it mobilizes an immune response against a pathogen. That's what this would be. Whole proteins in the blood are recognized as a pathogen. They're supposed to be. And there's an excellent book about this, by the way. I might even do a deep dive on that book, but it's a much smaller book, and I didn't save that many points on it. The book is called The Peanut Allergy Epidemic by Heather Frazier. And she argues that the use of peanut oil, egg protein, and other food proteins 
in vaccines is what's caused the modern epidemic of peanut allergies and egg allergies and a lot of these other weird food allergies. Because if you inject whole food, and this is very common, peanut oil is used in vaccines, eggs are used in vaccines. If you inject this into the body, the body's supposed to recognize those whole food proteins as a threat. And it's supposed to remember, this is what antibodies are about, are supposed to be about. Again, I don't think anyone truly understands antibodies, but this is how it's supposed to work in the kindergarten explanation of it. Once your body has identified a threat, it is supposed to recognize that threat if it sees it again and mobilize an immune response again. So you can have a peanut allergy, an egg allergy, caused by injecting those things into the body. I think there's a lot of credibility to that theory. I definitely recommend that book, The Peanut Allergy Epidemic, Heather Frazier. And this is my point here. I don't care about the virus that's in the vaccine. That's a small part of the vaccine. I'm worried about everything else that's in the vaccine. Everything else that's being injected directly into my bloodstream, including food particles. Injecting any food particles into the blood is a terrible idea in my opinion, and I'm not the only one that's saying that. If this same thing was happening from the digestion system, we would call this dirty blood or sticky blood, right? This is the problem with leaky gut. What's leaking? Whole food particles into the blood, right? When you have a digestion problem, let's say you're not chewing your food enough or there's not enough stomach acid or you're eating too quickly, eating too much food, all this stuff so that undigested proteins get into the intestine. For whatever reason, the proteins were not digested properly. They make it into the intestine. They're still proteins. The body's still gonna try and absorb those. So if you have this digestion problem and you're not breaking down proteins and your body's absorbing whole proteins, once again, your body is supposed to mobilize an immune response to those food proteins. This is how people can get symptoms like lupus or something from IBS. They get puffy and red and yeah, their immune markers will go up, like their CRP or cytokines or whatever they're measuring, looking for inflammation. Those should go up if you have such a digestion problem. And lupus, in most cases to me, is caused directly by a digestion problem. Because it's the same thing here. They've got the digestion problem and their body is overreacting with an immune response because food's not being digested properly. That's my opinion. So I'm saying when this happens in digestion, we've got to fix the digestion because this is a problem. But... The mainstream medical world, for some reason, still thinks it's a good idea to directly inject food proteins into the blood. And we're saying that's a terrible idea. Second reason I don't like vaccines is because of the poisons in them. Again, nothing to do with the virus. I don't even know if I believe in viruses. I'm, I'm very much on the side of terrain theory at this point. Viruses might be a response to an immune problem. They might be produced in the body as part of its response to an immune problem. They might not be the problem itself. Bacteria very clearly can be a problem for us. It can very clearly be called a parasite, as can worms and yeast and this other stuff. But viruses, the situation is not so clear. We will deep dive on a couple more terrain theory books here on the podcast in due time, so stay tuned. But I'm saying I don't care about that, whether it's terrain theory or germ theory. I care about whole proteins in the blood, and I care about poisons. Now, I'm on the CDC website right now because I wanted to see what they say. What's in vaccines? So they've got this whole page here, but it actually doesn't tell you specific ingredients. And that's because this stuff is all patented. So they're not legally obligated to tell you what's actually in them. But they say things like, oh, there's stabilizers in it. And the purpose is to keep the vaccine effective after manufacturing. 
Examples are sugars and gelatin. Okay, well, this is not a specific answer here. I know that there's lots of different types of vaccines and whatnot, but don't tell me there's stabilizers in it. What's a stabilizer? Is it only sugar and gelatin? Are you sure? Adjuvants is another category here. The purpose is to help boost the body's response to the vaccine. Examples of adjuvants are aluminum salts. Adjuvants, this is what the CDC is telling me here on their website, are also most commonly found in drinking water, infant formula, antacids, aspirin, antiperspirants. That doesn't sound good. I don't want to consume antiperspirants. I don't want to consume antacids either. Those are really bad. Aspirin, that's really bad. What the heck? Aluminum salts. Now, to us, aluminum is an essential nutrient, but not aluminum salts injected into the blood. Oh, and then there's residual inactivating ingredients. An example is formaldehyde. But oh, don't worry, they say. Most commonly found naturally in the human body, fruit, and household furnishings. Well, it is true that household furnishings, especially when they're new, will off-gas formaldehyde. I would say that's a big problem. That's not a good thing at all. Oh, don't worry. You find it in your household furnishings, too. Well, hey, can't that both be a problem? Can't it be a problem that formaldehyde's in vaccines and also a problem that it's in household furnishings? And it is true, to my knowledge, that there is a tiny amount produced in the human body as part of our metabolism, just like we also produce free radicals whenever we metabolize anything. Free radicals are bad, but they are produced in the process of digesting things and expending energy at all, so we need antioxidants for that. And I definitely would not want free radicals injected into my blood. And there are many things that can be fine or even essential in small doses, such as arsenic. Arsenic is essential for all vertebrates, but it can easily be deadly in higher concentrations. So that's our problem here when we bring up formaldehyde. And I had to work with formaldehyde before, by the way. Back when I worked in a chemistry lab at the University of Sydney and the Sydney Institute of Marine Science, I had to personally handle formalin, which is basically just diluted formaldehyde. We had to use that to preserve jellyfish and plankton samples, I believe. And when working with formaldehyde, just to avoid the fumes itself, and again, this is formalin, so this is actually diluted formaldehyde. It's less than 50% formaldehyde. I had to work under a fume hood, first of all, and wear all the safety gear. Lab coat, safety glasses, gloves, and I don't think a mask was mandatory, but it was strongly encouraged, and I think sometimes I did wear a mask. I didn't have to work that much with it, but I remember when I did, it was a big deal. Just to avoid breathing in the fumes of less than 50% formaldehyde solution. But yeah, that's injected into the veins of babies and sick people, old people. No problem, right? Well, no. We say it's a big problem. I say it's a big problem. This is my second biggest problem with vaccines is putting poisons directly into the blood. Another famous example is mercury, dimerosol. CDC listed here as a preservative with the purpose to prevent contamination. And don't worry, it's commonly found in some kinds of fish. That's what they say. Well, that's a problem. Mercury is a problem. Mercury is naturally occurring, and at the doses and the types of forms that you'll find in nature, like in spring water and organ meat and bone marrow and, yeah, bigger fish like tuna and shark and all this stuff, it's not going to harm you in that form, in that dose. But again, it's not something we want to inject directly into the blood. Obviously. It seems obvious. It should be obvious. 
it is absolutely horrifying to me that the mainstream medical world still completely brushes off the mercury that they inject into babies. And mercury is not in every vaccine, but it's in many of them. Especially the flu shots that they encourage us to get for no reason. It's not there to treat a problem, it's there to supposedly prevent a problem. And I think there's more than ample evidence to say that that's absolutely bogus. Flu shots do not prevent the flu at all. At all. If anything, they cause it more. These are only two examples, formaldehyde and mercury. Both of them are extremely potent, toxic poisons. If you were to use this in a professional setting, you would have to use extreme safety precautions. You would be punished if you failed to follow those protocols. If I was using formaldehyde out on the counter, not using the fume hood, I would have been fired immediately. And despite what the mainstream medical world says, there's also ample evidence that mercury fillings and other metallic fillings leach into the blood and cause mercury poisoning. These same people will dismiss, oh, don't worry about mercury in vaccines, it's just a little bit. Ah, don't worry about the mercury in your fillings. But you absolutely should be worried about it. These are massive problems. And a great book on this, the mercury and the evidence that mercury is bad, especially in fillings, is called It's All in Your Head by Dr. Hal Huggins. Very famous book. It's All in Your Head. Diseases Caused by Silver Mercury Fillings. Hal Huggins. Maybe we'll do a deep dive on that book. Very good book. Very clear to me that too much mercury is a problem. It's crazy that someone like me has to point that out to fully educated doctors. If you ask them in another context if mercury is poisonous, they'll say, yeah, obviously. But then they completely dismiss the mercury in vaccines. And the egg here, by the way, CDC tells me, is used as a cell culture material. So it's used to grow enough of the virus or bacteria to make the vaccine. Again, that's not what I care about. I care about whole proteins in the blood. And here they've also got a category called residual antibiotics. Remember, I just asked the CDC here, what's in vaccines? And they tell us here without giving much specific detail that they use stabilizers like sugar and gelatin, adjuvants like aluminum salts, residual inactivating ingredients like formaldehyde, cell culture materials like egg protein, preservatives like thimerosal or mercury, and residual antibiotics here is their last category. The purpose of putting these antibiotics in the vaccines is to prevent contamination by bacteria during the vaccine manufacturing process. And of course, these are most commonly found in antibiotics, because they're just adding antibiotics. Examples here, neomycin, canamycin, streptomycin, those are all common antibiotics. There's kind of a silly way of putting this. Don't worry, you can find these same ingredients in other antibiotics. Well, of course, you're putting those antibiotics in the product. Whatever, CDC. I don't know how that's supposed to put me at ease. We don't recommend antibiotics at all, in general, unless it's an emergency. They are very, very useful in emergencies, and they can save your life. Antibiotics have saved my life. That doesn't mean I want to inject it into my blood when I'm not having a bacterial problem. Oh, and they go out of their way here at the bottom of the page to tell us that... Um, Thimerosal contains a form of mercury. It's not used in every vaccine. And this type, ethyl mercury, does not cause mercury poisoning and is safe for use in vaccines. Yeah, right. And to be fair, they do have a couple of resources here where I can look more into specific vaccine ingredients, which I'm not going to do right now. I just wanted to make the point that it's these other poisons in the body that's the problem. And this brings us to the last thing that people talk to us about when we're talking about vaccines. People often get upset with us 
and I mean very health conscious people. Our audience on Instagram especially, it's very, very health conscious. In general, the average follower of ours is very, very health conscious. And they're on board with most of the main alternative health concepts. And one of those concepts is that vaccines are bad, vaccines cause autism, vaccines cause SIDS, vaccines cause all these different problems, right? Our followers want to believe that. Well, I'm telling you, those people tend to get upset with us when we come up with another explanation for autism or for SIDS, just for two examples. So let's address this. First of all, autism to us is in our blood sugar category. I've written a lot more about blood sugar in my book, Everything You Should Know About Healthy Blood Sugar. You can find that book on my website, notusbooks.org. You can also go to the audiobook section and see the YouTube version for free. And very soon I will put that up here on this podcast as well. So far I've only got my book, Fake Diseases Audiobook, here on the podcast. In my Healthy Blood Sugar book, I talk about all of the different things that can contribute to blood sugar. One of them, one of the big things, and I devote a big chapter to digestion, because a digestion problem is very likely to be involved. It often is. And autism is in our blood sugar category, by the way. Autism, ADD, ADHD, bipolar, manic depression, all of this is in our blood sugar category. Diabetes can just be caused by key nutrient deficiencies, by the way. It's completely preventable and reversible. But it's very likely that in the real world, the person also has a digestion problem. Why do I say this? Because I said earlier, one of the problems with the digestion problem is the possibility of having whole proteins going into the blood, causing an immune response. So somebody with autism, ADD, ADHD, in addition to the underlying blood sugar problem, which is mostly nutrient deficiency and eating too much processed sugar, they're very likely to have elevated markers of inflammation. Again, whatever you're looking at, whether it's CRP or cytokines or whatever. So I'm saying that inflammation is part of the problem in many of the cases, especially the extreme cases like nonverbal autistic children. But you don't need to have a digestion problem to have that same immune response, that same dirty blood, that same sticky blood. All you have to do is inject food proteins into a child or into an adult and you will get that increased inflammation, you will get that immune response. That's one part of the explanation. The second part of the explanation is that when you inject poison into the body, Specifically mercury. This is well known. We need certain nutrients in order to deal with these poisons. In the case of mercury, specifically, we at least need selenium and vitamin C. And there's going to be other nutrients as well, like zinc. But top of the list are selenium and vitamin C. So you put poison into the body, especially mercury. Your body now rapidly uses up its selenium and its vitamin C. Your body deploys its own glutathione and other immune factors to go and deal with the problem and it depletes your key nutrients key for the immune system key for the whole body in the case of SIDS we've talked about this elsewhere it's actually a big part of our message because Dr. Wallach got started in human nutrition forgive the brief diversion I'm going to have to do here very briefly Dr. Wallach started as a veterinarian and a comparative pathologist, someone who does autopsies on different species and compares them. Well, in 1978, when he was working at the Yerkes Primate Research Center in Atlanta, Georgia, he discovered the first non-human case of cystic fibrosis in a rhesus monkey. They published that around the world. They were very happy about it. They said, this is great. Dr. Wallach discovered cystic fibrosis in a monkey so that now we can study this supposedly genetic disease 
supposedly only affects humans, now we can study it in animals. That's great. They were very happy about this. Yerkes was. I put this whole story, by the way, in a book that I recently released with Dr. Wallach. It's called Primates, Medical and Surgical Management. And this is at the end here, the cystic fibrosis addendum that I added to this, because this does lead us to SIDS here. If you want to check out that book, again, it's on my website, notusbooks.org, because I also included the uh, follow-up research that connects us to SIDS. So he found the first non-human case of cystic fibrosis at the end of 1978. Early 1979, he announces that he can create as much cystic fibrosis monkeys as you want. It's not genetic. It's because you're feeding them just food. You're not giving them any vitamins and minerals. That's why they have these deficiencies. He said back then that the cystic fibrosis in those monkeys was caused by a selenium deficiency. And he also knew but couldn't prove that that was also connected to muscular dystrophy and cardiomyopathy heart attack. Same deficiency causes all of those problems and other problems. Selenium deficiency can cause problems all throughout the body. You need selenium for all your glands, right? So anytime you see cancer in a gland or something like fatty liver, liver cirrhosis, selenium deficiency is going to be a part of that. So they fired Dr. Wallach for saying that he could create as many as you want, that this is not a genetic disease, this is a nutritional deficiency during pregnancy that causes this. He was fired for that, and he went around the conferences, and in his own words, he said he told everyone, told doctors, told everyone, no one cared. So he went back to school to become a naturopath, an ND, to work with humans. He said, if the world doesn't care, I'm going to do this myself. So he did. 1982, he becomes a licensed naturopathic physician, in California and Oregon, he's been licensed ever since. But at the end of the 80s, he had the opportunity to go to China, Qishan, China, to prove his hypothesis here. Because his pathology career essentially ended with the cystic fibrosis debacle. He was fired, he was blacklisted, basically, from research. And it's a much longer and more interesting story. I'm trying to go quick here. But that was the reason he went into human medicine, and that's the reason that we're here together. You never would have heard of me or anything like that if it wasn't for Dr. Wallach leaving pathology and going into human medicine. And in 1989 in Qishan, China, he had the opportunity to autopsy. It was supposed to be 2,000 children who died of what was called Qishan disease, which is basically cardiomyopathy heart attack, which is the same basic heart attack that people are worried about right now, by the way, with the vaccine, myocarditis. We would call it cardiomyopathy, same basic thing. So hold that in your head. He goes to Kishan. They couldn't get all 2,000 autopsies done, but they got around 1,700 done on children. And in that paper, again, I included this at the end of primates, medical, and surgical management, because humans are primates. I thought this was a good way to end that textbook. In Kishan, he connected cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, cardiomyopathy heart attack, and sudden infant death syndrome. Basically, sudden infant death syndrome is cardiomyopathy heart attack in a baby or an infant. If it happens when it's young, they call it SIDS. If it happens later, they call it cardiomyopathy or myocarditis. Or just heart failure. So what's my point here? I know I went on a long track there. People freak out at us when we don't blame vaccines for SIDS. Well, SIDS rates have actually gone down significantly recently. And Dr. Wallach would attribute much of this to his lawsuit against the FDA in 2013. And he won that lawsuit. And as a result of that lawsuit, the FDA now recommends that infant formulas contain selenium at at least some minimum level. That wasn't there before. And in 1990, the SIDS rate was 130, just over 130 deaths per 100,000 live births. But in 2020, it was all the way down to just over 38. 
So from 130 down to 38 per 100,000. Dr. Wallach will give most of that credit to selenium and baby foods because of that lawsuit in 2013. So everybody just got vaccinated, right? Shouldn't SIDS go up? Well, it didn't. It's still going down because of selenium. That's our opinion. But rewind this. Could vaccines be having something to do with this? Yes, of course, because vaccines have poison in them, especially mercury, formaldehyde, and other poisons. When you put poison into the body, your body utilizes its selenium. It utilizes its vitamin C. It utilizes its zinc. It utilizes these key immune nutrients to deal with the poison. Well, what if you don't have any selenium left over? You don't have enough. Bam, you can get cardiomyopathy heart attack. If you're a baby, they call it SIDS. It's caused by selenium deficiency is our point here. And the vaccine, yes, indeed, may cause that deficiency. We already have serious problems with nutrient deficiencies, especially mineral deficiencies in our food supply, especially selenium. It's one of the most important ones. And then we add poison into the blood, which demands that we use our reserves of these key nutrients. And what do you get? More selenium deficiency problems or more nutrient deficiency problems in general. Talking about autism and blood sugar. Well, guess what it's involved? Vitamin C is involved, of course. Vitamin C is involved everywhere in the body. Zinc is involved, of course. Zinc is involved in the pancreas, so is selenium. The pancreas is what produces insulin. You can see there's a connection. You put poison into the body, it depletes nutrients more. We put our emphasis on the nutrients, and I know people get upset with us because they want to believe that vaccines are the problem. Well, vaccines are the tip of the iceberg of these other problems. It makes every other problem worse. I wouldn't personally ever recommend getting vaccinated for any reason. I don't believe that they work at all. I believe they cause harm, most definitely. I do plan to do more episodes here on vaccines so we could substantiate that even more. But it really is just a cherry on top of an already bad situation, a food supply with already rampant nutrient deficiencies, populations that are being raised on bad advice, and people like me are given antibiotics from a young age. Lots of young girls are put on birth control when they're like 10 years old. But any age, it's harmful. Birth control depletes many nutrients. It depletes all nutrients, basically, but especially the key ones like B vitamins, calcium, magnesium, zinc, and so on. Then you've got antibiotics, which destroy your gut microbiome, causes all kinds of problems, etc., etc. We're in an unhealthy environment to begin with, and then you add on vaccines injected into the blood. That just increases our nutrient deficiency problem, and it can push someone right off the edge where they have a heart attack or they have blood clots because blood clots are caused by nutrient deficiencies. So all these people worried about blood clots in the vaccines, well, go read the label at your local grocery store, flip over the omega-3 product. It says may prevent heart attack and stroke and thrombosis. It probably says that because we have qualified health claims. Again, another lawsuit from Dr. Wallach where he sued the FDA to get the qualified health claim that Supplementing with omega-3 essential fatty acid may prevent heart attack, stroke, and various forms of thrombosis. That's because your body needs the fatty nutrients especially to manage its blood viscosity properly. That's it. If you have a deficiency in the fatty nutrients, you could have blood that's too thin or you could have blood that clots too easily. And that could kill you. Either of those could actually kill you. The fatty nutrients are absolutely essential. So how to prevent blood clots from the vaccine? Same basic message we always give. Get off of processed foods, especially the gluten, so you can absorb the fatty nutrients properly. Get on all 90 essential nutrients, including those good fats. 
especially those good fats, so that your body has what it needs to have proper blood viscosity. So, just saying here, I'm almost done. A lot of people want vaccines to be the answer. This is what's causing autism. This is what's causing SIDS. Well, it's not true, but they are contributing. I agree with that. Don't shoot the messenger here. Vaccines deplete key nutrients, and if you have those nutrient deficiencies, you could have a catastrophic problem, or death, you could die if you have these deficiencies. Very possible. Okay, that was basically everything I wanted to address about vaccines. I hope you guys got a lot out of this episode. I think this was a very important episode that I've been meaning to do for a while. The podcast is basically my only place to put something like this, as I mentioned. I avoid this subject on Instagram in general and YouTube, and even public appearances. I don't want to talk about it. This is not our business. Our business is to help people get healthy, and vaccines have absolutely nothing to do with helping people get healthy. It's just an added difficulty that we have in the alternative health business. You know, we're called to put out fires, and you got these doctors that keep putting oil on the fires, and vaccines is part of that. It's one part of their bucket of oil they keep throwing on people. It makes it way harder to be healthy. But either way, my job remains the same, giving you the information you need to be as healthy as possible. And since we're done with the podcast now, I'll just remind you that you can reach out to me if you would like a health protocol for yourself or you'd like my advice on a health problem for you or for anyone else. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. If you reach out to me on email or Instagram or any other way, and you can find that information in the description of this podcast. If you reach out to me, I will give you the questionnaire and I'll give you my best advice to follow. And if you buy the supplements, I will make a commission, but there is no obligation the information is free to you. And of course, once again, you can find everything that I do, including all of the link to all of our social media accounts on my website, notusbooks.org, in the channels section. You can find an archive of this podcast there, including episodes that are not up on the podcast, and they may never be. I am posting older episodes slowly, but right now there is more on the archive than there is here. There's no ads or anything in the archive on notusbooks.org. You can download them for free. And if you listen to the episodes that are posted there on the archive, there's actually a special treat for you all the way at the end. So those of you who are listening on the website right now, stick around after I sign out. You get the treat. Everybody else, reach out to me if you'd like a protocol. Check out my website if you'd like to see more information. If you'd like to see my books. Of course, again, the free audiobook versions are also on the site. You can see hundreds of book reviews there as well. Many of them are in the health category. I have top health picks in the health and medicine section there. I've got a mandatory book list, all kinds of things. Check out the website, notusbooks.org. And once again, if you'd like to support extra on Patreon, patreon.com slash therealnotus, patreon.com slash therealnotus. I'd appreciate it mentioned earlier it's kind of the only way that i can see that people are directly supporting the podcast everything else is hard to tell book sales go up and down our book sales just kind of doubled recently the last couple weeks they've been very high but i have no idea what caused it i don't know if it's because of the podcast i don't know where those sales are coming from same with supplements i don't know what's going on things go up and down and right now the only way that i know that you specifically support the podcast is on patreon and I do post the episodes there as well. And if I do get enough patrons, I think I've got five right now, by the way, which I'm very, very happy about. Thank you guys so much. But if I got a bit more than that, I think I could commit to doing some extra content there. 
as I mentioned, doing full audiobooks that are not my books. That's definitely an option for Patreon. And I don't plan to get sponsors here or anything. I will apply to get monetized on this, but I don't expect much. Spotify cut me off of my monetization on the last podcast very quickly. I think they paid me $54 and then they cut me off. So I'm definitely not planning for ad revenue or anything like that. And me and anyone who does guest appearances here, anyone who helps with the editing, anything, all of us do this completely for free. So anything that's coming in from Patreon does actually have the ability to directly help us here. I would like to pay an editor one day. And with some actual revenue, we might be able to get episodes done better and faster. Either way, I'm going to continue on. So no pressure here. If you want to support, you can. Patreon.com slash TheRealNotUs. And that really is all I've got for today. I appreciate you guys so much. Feel free to reach out. Let me know any other topics you'd like to see covered here. Share this podcast if you know someone that would benefit from it as well. And until next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.